Good morning, church family. So good to see you all. This is uh, sort of a bittersweet moment. I think this may be our last uh, larger gathering for the next, uh, for the next foreseeable uh, future, at least. So I'm feeling, I'm feeling a little bit how my shirt looks right now. I came to church this morning with a perfectly starched iron shirt. And uh, this is what happens when you have uh, three services, uh, I guess. But uh, one benefit of live streaming is I can just go back to preaching in basketball shorts and pajama bottoms. So uh, looking forward to, no, I'm not looking forward to that at all. Uh, open up your Bibles to the, to the book of Ruth. And uh, we're starting in this, this new series, this beautiful little book that is set in Bethlehem that we're going to use as our Advent uh, series as we look forward to, uh, to Christmas. Um, it's set in the, uh, in the city in which Jesus was, was born, but it doesn't begin there. It doesn't begin in Bethlehem. It, it begins uh, really at a dead end, and that's the title for today's message, and I think it's really fitting for uh, the circumstances and situation uh, where we find ourselves uh, right now. It feels a little bit like a dead end. It feels like, okay, this is our, our last uh, opportunity to gather uh, at a maximum capacity of 50, and the government is asking us to gather at groups of 10, which pretty much just covers like the worship team and myself and, and the folks at the back doing audiovisual. And so uh, for, for many of us, we're feeling deflated right now. For many of us, things happening in our business or thinking about Christmas without being with our family or, or thinking about the trips that we had planned or the weddings that were planned or whatever that may be. As we've been talking uh, as a church family, I just think it's important for us to recognize just the, the grieving that all of us are experiencing in, uh, in our current uh, situation and circumstance. Ruth is this beautiful little story. The, the, the subtitle for the series is a story of redemption. And in, in and of itself, in these four little chapters, we have this story of redemption, which really serves as a microcosm of the, of the greater story uh, that God is working out in, in not, just, not just the redemption of Naomi and Ruth that we see in the story, but the, but the redemption of, of humanity, of everyone who would place their faith in Jesus. And not only that, the story of Ruth is like a really important chapter in the unfolding, uh, in that larger unfolding story of God's redemption. So it's a microcosm in and of itself, but it's also a really key turning point in having that story uh, fulfilled. So let me read to you from Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, God, we want to uh, stop at this moment and recognize, God, the, uh, the joy that comes from um, worshiping together. And although we're physically distant from one another and wearing masks, although this is far from the ideal, we are thankful, Lord. Like the psalmist who said, I was filled with joy when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. 
So God, I thank you that we can be here together one last time. Lord, we pray that you would be present uh, with us. We pray, God, that you would be with my mouth, that you would help me to speak that which is true, that which is sound doctrine, that which would build up the body of Christ to do the work of ministry. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be working in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's my aim really in this first message to really establish the setting, the characters, the, and the context of this story. Where does it all fit? And that's what these first five verses are all about. They, they lay the backdrop, the, the setting through which this beautiful story unfolds. And so we're going to look at this, this story initially just from a, a couple of vantage points, uh, historically and socially, culturally and theologically and, and personally. So I want to begin by looking at the social and political context, the social and political context of the story. In verse 1, it says, in the days when the judges ruled. So this puts the story at a particular point in time in the history of the people of Israel. In fact, it was a very, it was a very dark time, this time when the judges ruled. If we were to, to plot a Judges and Ruth sort of in the unfolding biblical narrative, the, the Old Testament begins with the book of Genesis. This is Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden and the fall of man and they're exiled out of there. And then the flood and Noah and the judgment on the whole earth. And then the promise made to Abraham to establish this, this family that was going to grow into a nation and bless all of the other families and nations in the earth. And then Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then Jacob has all of these sons, and they mistreat one of them, and they all end up in Egypt at the end of Genesis. And then in Exodus, Moses is called to have the people set free from slavery in Egypt, and you have the ten plagues, and then, and then the parting of the Red Sea, and then the ten commandments, and then... Exodus ends with the construction of the tabernacle, this place where God was going to be worshipped. And then Leviticus is like the instruction manual on how to use the tabernacle. What are the different rules and regulations for the worship rituals and the sacrifices that were supposed to happen there? And then in the book of Numbers, they get on the move. And they're headed towards the promised land. And they end up wandering in the wilderness for uh, for 40 years until we come to the book of Deuteronomy when they're right on the shore of the Jordan River, right on the border of the promised land. And Deuteronomy means second law. So Moses read the law a second time. There's a series of sermons that Moses was giving the people to encourage them as they went into the promised land. And then Joshua is when the people do. They cross the Jordan, another parting of water, just like the Exodus. They cross the Jordan. They conquer their enemies. The walls of Jericho fall. All of these different battles and victories. And then we come to the book of Judges. And Ruth is set. It says in, in Ruth 1.1, this, this book was written in the days when the judges ruled. The judges ruled after the generation, after the Joshua generation, the, the warriors, the conquerors, after all of them died out. The next generation and all the generations that were following for, for several years began to turn away from the Lord. And we have the best summary of what was happening at that time culturally and politically, socially in Judges chapter 2, 
verses 12 to 19. You can turn there or I'll put it for you on the screen here. It says, they went after other gods and from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, they bowed down to them. Now, this really didn't make, this was completely irrational and sin so often is irrational. It makes no sense. These were the gods of the land of Canaan. These were the loser gods. The real God defeated all of these gods. And yet, for whatever reason, again, sin is so irrational, they chose to worship these other gods. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved by pity, moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. So there was sort of this cycle that was taking place. The people would rebel against God, and then that would lead to God sort of disciplining them by, by allowing oppression to come into their lives. When, and, then, and then they would cry out to God. It says that they, they, they were groaning, and God would have compassion on them and then send a judge. But it says that as soon as the judge died, the people went back to rebelling. And then in verse 19 there, it, it said that they got more and more corrupt. So it wasn't just a cycle. It was a downward spiral. The, the culture was, was spinning out of control. It was getting worse and worse. And we, we, see, we see this even in the judges. The, the book of Judges begins with you know, good judges like Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar and Deborah. These were people who feared God. They weren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but they tried to do the right thing. They tried to lead the people in honoring God. But then as, this, as, this, as the story unfolds, you get into people like Jephthah or people like Gideon who started so well but really didn't finish well at all. And then Samson, it's not that he didn't finish well, he didn't start well, the middle wasn't, the, every, the, Samson was just a total train wreck. It just got worse and worse and worse. And the people's behavior and ethics got worse and worse and worse. So the, you come to the end of the book of Judges, there's rape and murder and dismemberment and genocide. So the, the, at the conclusion, th this is what it means when Ruth 1.1 says, in the time where the judges ruled, Judges 21.25 says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That if, if you want a culture to spin out of control, all you have to do is just tell everyone, you do you, I'll do me, all right? I'm okay, you're okay. Just whatever is true for you, you just do what, does this sound at all familiar today? Is anyone, our world right now is, is in a cycle and is tail spinning out of control. And so the book of Ruth is so fitting for us to be studying right now because here is, here is a story of really some obscure, unknown, ordinary, everyday people. These are not politically important people. These are not cultural influencers. Ruth and Naomi, Boaz, don't go out and win any battles. They don't give any great speeches. They don't achieve anything politically. The, the, the culture was spinning out of control, and yet here are some people 
who demonstrate faithfulness, hard work, loyalty, kindness, sacrifice, and devotion to God, even in the most dark of times. And that's what we're called to right now. All of those things, and we're going we're gonna to glean all of those beautiful examples from this book. So that's the social and political context. We turn now to the historical and geographical context. It goes on in verse 1. It says, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. So this this story took place at a particular time, the, the, the days when the judges ruled, in a, in a land, and it involves people from Bethlehem who made a journey down to Moab. So this land that's experiencing a famine isn't just any land. And this moving from Bethlehem to Moab isn't, isn't like you know relocating from Mississauga to Brampton or from Georgetown to Orangeville. No, there's something far more significant here because this land was not just any land. This was the promised land. And God had promised this land back to, all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. This was the promised land that Moses had led the people out of Egypt to get to this place. This was the promised land that Joshua and all those courageous warriors fought for. And God had made some promises about the promised land, some conditional promises. In Leviticus chapter 26, God said, If you walk by my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in, the, in your land securely. Notice the if and the I will. If you, I will. It's a conditional promise. If they follow God's rules and God's laws and live the way they were meant to live, then God will allow rain to fall and the ground to increase and the trees to bear fruit. But then later in the chapter, Leviticus 26, beginning at verse 14, we have another if and another I will. But if you will not listen to me and will not do these do all these commands, I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain, and your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. And if, notice this, and if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins." You see, this famine was intended to be a wake-up call that as if and as the people of God start to turn away from him, turn toward other gods, start disobeying his commands, living the life the way that they want to live, what, doing what's right in their eyes rather than doing what God wants done, God said, I will send a famine. And as you look up to the sky and see there's no rain, it's like it's ironclad up there. And you look down at the ground and you see it's like bronze and nothing can grow out of it. That when you, when you see that, then you're supposed to turn towards the Lord. And, and God says, when I bring this on your life, I'm not punishing you. I'm disciplining you. I'm giving you these things as signs so that you will turn away from your wicked ways and turn towards me. That's God's intention. 
The point of the famine was to wake the people up, to break them out of that cycle. But the people didn't listen, and the people in this story didn't listen. You see, they looked at the famine, and all they saw was a food shortage. And they didn't see what was going on behind the scenes. They were, all they were concerned about were the symptoms and weren't looking at the root cause, which is what the heart of God is here in Leviticus chapter 20, 26. And so this family just tries to deal with the symptom. They try to deal with the food shortage. And they go and move to Moab. So here's the man from Bethlehem in verse 1. Bethlehem, Beth means house, Lehem means bread, Bethlehem means house of bread. The place that's supposed to, it's part of the promised land, it's one of the most fertile areas in the, in the region of Judah. It's supposed to be full of bread, a house full of bread. And there's a famine there, and rather than turning to the Lord, they turn to Moab. So if we map this geographically, here's a Bethlehem sort of in the northern part of Judah around Jerusalem. And they would have had to journey across the Jordan River, down south through the tribe of Reuben's territory, and into the region of Moab. Doesn't seem that far geographically, but Moab and Bethlehem were worlds apart. We, we, we see this, if we, if we take a look at the sort of historical context, the background between Israel and Moab, it becomes quite clear why this move was quite questionable. Moab, Mo means uh, who, Ab means father. Who is your father? That, that's what a Moabite is. No one knows who your father is, or we know who your father is. Do you know who your father is? Back in Genesis chapter 19, Abraham's knucklehead nephew, Lot, remember Lot, who uh, moved strangely near Sodom and Gomorrah, and then a, a few chapters later, he's living in Sodom and Gomorrah, and even though angels personally warned him to get out of the city, he dragged his feet that, so that the, the angels had to grab him and his wife by the arms and drag them out of the city. His wife turned and looked back, became a pillar of salt. This same Lot, after he is rescued, ends up in an incestuous relationship with both of his daughters and the Moabites came out of the offspring of that initial relationship. And so the Moabites had this sort of sketchy heredity, their, their, their family tree, this, this, even their very name, who's your father, Moab. Then in Numbers chapter 22, when the people of Israel are, have left the, the slavery of Egypt and were moving through the wilderness, and, but by the time they get to the end of Numbers, they are at the border of the Promised Land, which is, which is Moab, right up against the Jordan River there. And they were told, listen, don't, don't try to start a fight with Moab. Just move through peaceably. This is how God led them. But Balak, the king of Moab, hires Balaam, who is a prophet, to come and to curse the people of God. Even though the people of God, they came in peace. And yet, he came to try to curse them. Now, to make a long story short, we end up at the end of chapter 24 with one frustrated king, three, three blessings on the people of Israel, and one talking donkey. 
And th that, that's just how the story works out. Kids, if you like Shrek, Shrek you'll love uh, Numbers 22 to 24. Then in Numbers 25, one chapter later, the, the women of Moab seduce the men of Israel. This is one of the reasons why, if you wonder why, you know, why, why on earth would the people of Israel go after another god or, or serve someone? Well, because a lot of the other gods had different ethics. <laughs> and so the, one of the reasons, well, one of the benefits of serving another god is that you got to give in to some of your fleshly desires. And so often, sexuality and religious ritual and fertility, all of these things were intertwined. And so as the Moabite women lured these men sexually, sensually, as they seduced them, along with that came all of the religious ritual tied into sexuality. And so in Numbers chapter 25, there's this massive turning away from the Lord, again because of Moabite women. And then we come to Judges chapter 3. In Judges chapter 3, we're introduced to one of the kings of Moab, whose name is Eglon. And maybe this is why this family wanted to move to Moab, because there must have been a lot of food for Moab, in Moab, because the one thing Eglon was known for was being really, really obese. And he occupied Israel for 18 years. He had the people of Israel with his foot on their throat for almost two decades until one of the judges, Ehud, took a dagger and assassinated Eglon. Now, Eglon was, was so corpulent that, that as he stabbed him, the blade of his dagger went into Eglon, and then the, the blade of it also went under his muffin top. And so when we think about this, this relationship between Israel and Moab, you have... You have the sketchy heredity. You have the failure to cooperate with Israel when they were just trying to move through the territory in peace. They actually tried to curse. Then they seduced them towards idolatry. And then even this could have been written at the very time when Eglon was at the height of his power during the time of the judges. There were lots of reasons why this was a bad idea for the members of God's chosen people to leave God's pro chosen or promised land to dwell in Moab. But loved ones, we can all be guilty of living by the same principles. We all have a tendency to try to deal with symptoms rather than getting at root causes. And we may, we, we, we may never experience something as extreme as the famine that this family was experiencing there are hardships and difficulties. Even this pandemic right now is, is, is putting pressure on us in certain places. Then, and there are certain Moabs where we have a, a tendency to want to run towards. For some of us, as, as we think about our potentially losing our job or losing our business or whatever that is, that the place where we're running is just workaholism. If I just put in a little couple extra hours over dinner, I go, last night I didn't get it all done, so tonight I'm going to skip dinner with the family to just to kind of press in and to get some more work done. For others of us, it's the opposite. It's not working more, it's working less. We're, we're, we're trying to escape into, into Netflix or into entertainment or into something even more dangerous like, like pornography. Or, or some other sinful indulgence. 
Or we're thinking, you know what, I want to maintain the current lifestyle that we have, so we're going to take on a little bit more, a little bit more commercial debt right now so that we can, even though things are a little bit tight, we're going to take, these are all areas where we can compromise. Or I'm going to stay or start this unhealthy relationship because I'm lonely right now under these current situations and circumstances. We all have a tendency to seek shelter or refuge or relief from leaving the place of God's promise and going to a place of compromise, going to a, going to a place like Moab. And so it's important, lastly, for us to think about this story in its personal and theological context. Personal, first and foremost, for the people in the story, but then personal for us. And theological, obviously, for them as God was at work in their lives, but then also trying to see how what's happening with us right now intersects with our faith. In verse 2, we're, we're introduced by name to this family. It says, the name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. Elimelech, Eli, Eli is a name for God. Melech means king. Elimelech means God is my king. In the days of the judges where there was no king and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, Elimelech, the one who should understand his very name, should clue him into the fact that maybe we should start listening to God, just did what everyone did in the days of judges. He did what was right in his own eyes. And it was right for him to leave the promised land and to go to Moab. And then his wife, Naomi, who's really, although the story is named after Ruth, the story is really about Naomi. Naomi means pleasant or good or sweet. And then their sons, Malon and Kilion. The translation is sketchy in terms of what their names would have meant, but some say that their names meant weakling and nearly dead, which, as the story plays out, would, would make sense. It says that they, at verse 2, they went into the country of Moab and they remained there. Remember the, the plan in verse 1 was that they would sojourn there. Sojourn is sort of an old English word that we don't use every day. Every day. We kind of only use it when we're reading the Bible. Sojourn means to be a temporary resident. You know, you're not, you don't renovate your rental apartment. You're not staying there long term. You, you you, you, if you could, you'd go month to month on your lease because you don't know. You, it's, it's just temporary. There isn't a long-term commitment. But by the time you get to the end of verse 4, it says that they lived there. They lived there. They were settled for 10 years. But when we come to verse 2, there's something in between sojourning and living. They remained. They just kind of floated there for a while. It's not like they were planning on moving back anytime soon, but they st still weren't putting down roots. They just, they were just, they were just remaining. You see, here's the thing. No one plans to stay in Moab long term. The workaholic doesn't think, you know what, I'm going to work 12-hour days, six days or seven days a week for the rest of my life. No, no, it's, it's always, once this project is over, I'll start to reprioritize my family and my faith and my health. No one plans to do that long term. 
No one, no one thinks, no one goes onto the internet and starts cruising around pornography websites thinking, I'm going to waste hours of my life and dive into this addiction for years and years and basically destroy everything else around me. No one plans on doing that when they just start clicking around. No one expects to be crippled by debt when they go to the payday loans just to get a quick bailout. No one goes to Moab long term. We all think we can sojourn there. And many of us right now are in, are in this gray zone. Please forgive the term, but we're in this gray zone where we're not running away from sin and we're not charging forward, settling into it. But it's important for us right now to think in terms of this pandemic, in terms of what we are going through, what are the areas of compromise in our life? And it's time for us to turn and to begin to seek the Lord. We see the consequences or what happens next in verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Elimelech dies. The two sons marry Moabite women and they also die. The story doesn't tell us that there's a direct correlation between the bad choices Elimelech made and his death or the death of his children. I mean, the Bible doesn't pull any punches about, about explaining times where God strikes someone down as a direct result of their disobedience, but that's not the case here. Sometimes in our life we suffer, and we suffer because of a specific choice that we made to sin. We chose to sin, and the consequence is suffering. Some other times, though, we suffer, and there's no explanation why. We don't have, the, we can't draw it back to anything that, that, that has happened to us or anything that we have done or anything that we have allowed. And again, the narrator here doesn't give us a window into the either or. The truth is, there is suffering in our world. There is suffering in this room right now. Some of it is because we've made bad choices. Some of it is because other people have made bad choices and we're suffering the consequences. Some of it, we just, we can't understand. All we know in verse 3, it says that, that, that Ruth was, or sorry, Naomi was left without her husband. Verse 5, she was left without her sons and her husband. Some of you probably thought at the beginning of the message, would, why did he stop at verse 5? Couldn't he read a little bit further? Just even like, can we get to verse 6? Couldn't we have a, a little bit of hope? I mean, couldn't we skip to the end of, of chapter 4 and see the happily ever after part? Well, I just think it's important for us just to stand with Naomi for a little while at the graveside of the third family member that she's had to bury in the last decade. I think it's important in these days 
whether our suffering is similar to what Naomi is going through or whether we're just dealing with the mild inconveniences and irritations of a lockdown, I think it's important for all of us to stop and to grieve and to acknowledge our frustration, to, to acknowledge our disappointment, to acknowledge our anger, to acknowledge our, our sense of despair or fear. Yeah, sure, we could skip to chapter 4. Yeah, sure, we could skip to 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and David and all of that. But then there's just more downhill. There's more spiraling out of control after that. And well, we could skip ahead to Jesus. But then, but then there's Good Friday. And sometimes we move too quickly beyond Good Friday to get to Easter Sunday. But sometimes you just need to stay in the hard place. Not forever, but just linger there for a little while. I mean, we could skip all the time. We could, every sermon could end in Revelation chapter 21, the presence of God, and he will wipe away every tear. These are all good things. But sometimes we just need to stand with Naomi in a foreign land at her third funeral. Sometimes we need to look at this opening passage and just see it only, just look at how it only really takes five verses to chronicle how someone's life completely fell apart. So we, like, the sermon is ending. We, we, this is going to be the end. The, the story of Ruth begins at a dead end. And this story that God is writing in the life of Hope Church and the life of our individual families is beginning with a, with a second lockdown. It's, it's beginning with all that is happening all around us, but we need to remember that some of God's best work begins at a dead end. The book of Ruth begins at a dead end. Adam and Eve walking out the eastern gate of the Garden of Eden is a dead end. Israel in slavery in Egypt and being told to make bricks without straw after Moses' first crack at freedom is a dead end. Nehemiah examining the broken walls of Jerusalem by night is a dead end. The corpse of Jesus Christ lying breathless, limp, and cold in a dark tomb is a dead end. Though the sorrow may last for the night, joy comes in the morning. But the acknowledgement that joy comes in the morning doesn't cancel the sorrow that goes on all through the night, wondering, will the sun rise again? Naomi was left, left without her two sons, left without her husband, but she wasn't left without the Lord. God was standing there with her. And in such a surprising twist, God was going to provide a traveling companion along this difficult road to redemption for Naomi. He was going to provide Ruth, after whom this book is named. One of the only two women that has a name in the Bible named after her. The only non-Jewish name in all of the titles of the books in the Old Testament. 
These are dark and difficult times here in the book of Ruth. These are dark and difficult times in which we are living. And God is with us. And God is calling us to be traveling companions with one another on this road to redemption. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We come to you uh, by your Spirit, your Spirit who comforts us in all of our affliction, your Son who's called the Man of Sorrows, who is acquainted with grief. Lord, you who are, who are called the, the God of all comfort, we pray, Lord, in this moment that you would help us to respond in a way that most brings honor and glory to you. Lord, we'll sing at some point this, this Christmas carol over the Advent season, O come, O come, Emmanuel. We'll sing songs of longing for you to come and to ransom and redeem and restore your people. And so, Lord, as the Advent season is all about longing, as it is all about looking to you and wanting you to break through, Lord, help us to be found faithful. God, I pray that you would comfort us and help us, that you would strengthen us. Lord, to live lives of faithfulness in this moment, God. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.